Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I felt early on into the process that the purpose of me doing this is to generate an income later on in my life. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Gary Harvey, an award-winning property investor and mortgage broker who not only works with investors but offers assistance to homeowners. You will learn exactly how Harvey built a portfolio that increased his family's wealth, what inspired him to start his property journey and much, much more. A typical day for Harvey usually revolves around his clients and meetings which keeps him pretty occupied in his business. My days are pretty varied but it's um, a lot of um, uh, loan applications, um, strategizing with clients, client meetings, um, you know, what well, I do talk through with my clients some of their um, uh, property decisions as well and provide uh, some guidance there. I wouldn't say I would provide advice. It's, um, it's a pretty strong word in this industry. So it's more around, you know, education and guidance, um, understanding what they want to try and do and what types of uh, investments might help deliver that. And, and I think that's the best way for people to learn as well to be honest. So, um, that that's pretty much my day. I uh, keep pretty busy doing it and um, yeah, and a lot of client meetings, I try to get out and see my clients you know, in their home or, or office to, to provide that level of service. Harvey believes providing an overwhelming amount of advice can push his clients away. So, he focuses on guiding them so that they can make their own decisions. I draw out a lot of things and I do cash flow modeling for people in in a very simplistic way so they so they understand it because it's not actually that complicated <clears throat> but sometimes a big spreadsheet can look a bit daunting um, particularly for new investors so I try to keep it really simple and 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 make sure they understand at, at each point. Prior to working with investors, Harvey shares details about his upbringing where he lived in different parts of Australia during his younger years. I grew up in Adelaide. Um, I was born over there and spent the first 12 years of my life there. Moved around a couple of times, uh, but lived pretty close to the beach, so that was always nice growing up. Um, and then my uh, father got a transfer for work back in 87, so we came, the whole family moved over to Melbourne, and I've been out in the northeastern suburbs of Melbourne ever since. Despite living in Melbourne for most of his life, he still has fond memories as a kid in Adelaide. I was a typical uh, young boy, I guess. I loved, you know, riding push bikes and skateboards and hanging out at the beach, um, 
I just remember um, spending a lot of time down on the water, um, uh, which was good. It was interesting. I think about it a little bit. Like I'd go down to the beach on my own, you know, probably from the age of eight upwards, you know, and and then to, today when I had my own, like when I had my own kids many years ago, you, I wonder whether I'd do that now. You know, it's a bit of a different kind of kind of world, perhaps. But yeah, we would we were always free. Mum always knew where we were and just had a lot of fun, really. So played, you know, played footy, a little bit of cricket. So pretty typical. Typical um, young kid, I guess. Regardless of being away from the beach, Harvey continues to enjoy his life as a kid in Victoria. I really enjoyed that. And, and look, that really continued when I came to Melbourne. I, I was fortunate enough to live in a, uh, a great uh, street. We had lots of um, teenage kids uh, in the street. It'd be nothing for us to have, you know, a dozen or 15 kids uh, all hanging out in the street after school each day. So... Yeah, we just we just had a good good environment to grow up, always something to do. Harvey reveals how he did not have a strong passion or let alone an interest for school. I was never that interested in in school. I kind of just got by, to be honest. Uh, didn't I didn't really know what direction my life was going to take. Um, after high school, like I didn't I, I still remember uh, you know, I, I didn't even pick subjects that really had that in, much of an interest to me. It was kind of bizarre. I just, you know, felt that I, I probably should finish year 12, but I, I didn't apply for uni. Um, I was only about one of six or seven, I think, in my year that didn't go on to just seek a place in uni. But I'd been working from the age of uh, 15, just doing part-time jobs, you know, hospitality and... I did some gardening work and and things like that. So when I when I did leave school, I actually ended up working at McDonald's full time for about three or four months um, because I'd been there uh, part time while at school. And while I was just kind of working out what I wanted to do, they said I could work there full time, and and that's what I did really. So I got sick of eating McDonald's because that's pretty much what we did <laughs> most days. Um, but I enjoyed the camaraderie uh, that that job brought. I, I met a lot of good people and still got uh, a lot of those people I worked with back in, that was in the early 90s. They're still friends of mine today. So uh, it was a great yeah, great place to work and, you know, very, um, there's a lot of discipline um, in, the, in the store that I worked in anyway. Talk, taught you a good work ethic. Um, had a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, it was it was really good. I I spent probably two years at Maccas, maybe two and a half. And even back then, were they were they still called Maccas, or was that a term that came up more recently? Because I can't remember when that was coined. Yeah, we used to still call it Maccas. Yeah, um, and then I ended up doing their. I did all sorts of jobs. I ended up doing their maintenance work. I remember starting work at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. The maintenance. That's when the maintenance person started to you know clean all the floors and windows and everything to get the store ready for the next day so um sort of tried tried a bit of everything really after working at mcdonald's harvey shares what he went on to next so then i went in i worked in a factory uh which was local to where i was living we were making electronic transformers for the telecommunication uh sector i did that for probably uh probably about five years 
with with a little bit of a gap where I worked in the car industry for a year just to try something different and get out of sort of the you know the concrete walls of the factory. Um, but I didn't really enjoy the car industry that much. I'm, I'm glad I did it for a bit of experience, but it wasn't really for me. And then after the <clears throat> the five years in the factory, I I just I had to be outdoors. I'm a bit of an outdoors person, so I just said, look, I'm going to get into the building industry. I had no idea what I was going to do, how it was going to look, but I <clears throat> I remember because um, at that point in my life, I'd you know I'd borrowed money for a car and borrowed money for a motorbike, and you know and everything was fine. Why I had this steady income coming in, and I was living at home. And then when I decided to make that change, and I I basically became a labourer on a on uh, just a domestic building site. So my my salary dropped a lot, and and I you know that that reality of well now I've got all this stuff I can't afford, so I kind of dismantled all that, sold it off, and and just set about learning a whole range of different things in the building industry because I just I love making things and and um, I I really spent about um, probably I started my I did it for a couple of years. I travelled overseas in the late 90s for six months with my now wife. We did a bit of a trip around the world. And then when I come back, I started my own business. And I, I had that business going for about 18 years. I only got rid of it maybe three or four years ago. We discover what led Harvey to find himself in the mortgage broking business. I started in 2006 and it was an interesting uh, way into the industry because I was uh, I was six years into my property investment journey at that point. I started in 2000 and the mortgage broker that was helping me at the time said, well, you're coming to me all the time for money. Why don't I teach you how to do it yourself? Uh, and I hadn't even thought about it. I, you know, I was a, well, I mean, I was a tradesperson, but I wasn't a qualified tradesperson. I just did all sorts of different things. Um, and when he suggested that, and he showed me the modelling of the business, and and it you know it really appealed to me, and and uh, I got started that way, um, and I transitioned probably for about seven or eight years. To be honest, I did I did both roles part time because I at that point in my life I couldn't afford any dip in my income because of my commitments I'd made as an investor. So I figured, and I knew that building a mortgage business is a is a time. It takes quite a bit of time, um, particularly to build it the way I wanted to. Just you know, I'm not. A, I don't consider myself a salesperson. I just like to help and share information with people. So you know, you don't. <clears throat> the phone doesn't ring off the hook when you first decide to be a mortgage broker. It takes a takes a long time to get the word out there. So so I did it part time for for yeah good six or seven years and and eventually went full-time I guess maybe four or five years ago. As Harvey was only mortgage brokering part-time, he did have another job to cover his everyday living expenses. We used to restore uh, brickwork on old homes so so period style homes. It's There's a technique called tuck pointing um, so we'd repair that that old tuck pointing which is on the facade of those old period homes. Um, and yeah, so I did that, and it was it was in a when I look back, it was quite good because 
you didn't get a lot of interruptions in that business. You know, you just set up like we could be on jobs for, you know, weeks, months. So you just chip away each day at a section of the brickwork. And so, it, you know, it allowed me time to take phone calls and, you know, if I had to duck out and see clients um, during the day, it didn't really inconvenience the way that business ran. Harvey goes on to explain how he found himself in this type of business and why everything he did was all done by hand. So I was working with a bricklayer. I wanted to learn how to lay bricks. And um, so I did that for quite a while with him, maybe a year or more. And he, uh, apart from laying bricks, he would do this this tuck pointing, which is which is basically replacing mortar uh, in a specific way on these period homes. So, so when he showed me that, I, I I had a lot of interest in it. I thought, you know, I could really see myself creating a business doing that. It, yeah, you know, I've got a lot of patience, and you certainly needed that with that job. Uh, and, and I had a lot of pride in what I did. So at the end of the day, you could look back and and see the finished product of what you'd done that day. And and you always were working for happy clients too, because they'd come home from work each day and you know see the improvement to the to the front of their home. So um, kind of just just fell into it really, um, and just just had a go. Yeah. Harvey explains the steps he encountered to find his way into property investment as well as the influence of the people he surrounded himself with. I think my parents were probably a little bit um, risk adverse when it came to uh, a lot of investment. Like my parents hadn't invested in property. Um, but I'd, you know, I'd speak to a lot of people. I'd speak to builders and developers and I'd just hear all this stuff about, you know, what they're doing, what's possible. Um and it just appealed to me. I just felt I I had to go and learn this stuff. Yeah, I didn't know really what it looked like at that point in time. Um, and and I'd talk. You know, I had a few close friends that we would talk about stuff and probably inspire each other a little bit. And and um, one of them told me. I still remember the day I bought it. Um, the uh, Robert Kiyosaki Rich Dad Poor Dad. Um, and I, I don't read, so I, I um, bought the audio and just listened to it in my, my van. And I just listened to it constantly, just over and over and over, and it, it really resonated with me what he spoke about. Um, and then I just set out to try to learn to you know, build something in the background while I was, I was working because I knew that just – working as a well I was a laborer in a sense in my business it was it was all manual labor uh, it was was only going to get me so far so um, I just had this urge to to learn um, that there's got to be another way to to try and advance yourself so so yeah a couple of, couple of good friends certainly were, were encouraging you know not, not everyone is it's quite interesting when you look back you know, you can get quite excited about what you want to do and you just, you know, kind of get shut down a bit by by other people. So I just sort of kept <clears throat> close with the people that were encouraging and, and um, yeah, listened to this material and I was learning a lot and then I, I guess it just gave me the, the confidence to just start, you know, I, I just – because uh, because I wasn't probably getting this, you know, I was telling my parents what I wanted to do, and because they hadn't done it before, they didn't really understand it, and and couldn't offer me 
you know, that encouragement, though, you know, probably a bit worried about it. But I just had this attitude, you know, I came into this world with nothing and and uh, I've got nothing to lose. So I um, just went on this journey, I guess, of, of learning and uh, and having a go. And and it took me a little while because I'd, I'd often ask, uh, yeah, people their views and opinions and it was a lot of it was negative um so i i ended up just doing a lot of it in silence to be honest i just uh yeah i like i said i had a couple of close friends that we'd talk uh you know i could chat with but in the you know my my greater network i guess i just couldn't you know i was i was felt like i was defending myself all the time so i just thought well you know, bugger it, I'll just go and go and do what I gotta do and what will be will be. So, so that's what I did. <laughs> Harvey goes on to further explain how his parents reacted to what he wanted to do. I wanted to invest in property and I just think they, you know, because you know, it involves borrowing money and and <clears throat> you know, they're probably as parents are, they're just uh looking out for you. Don't want to see you get into something you can't deal with and and I think it's like most things. If you don't understand it, it's you. You can become afraid of it, um, and you know, just want to keep it a bit, bit distant. So, so I think it was more that with my parents, and um, yeah, they certainly didn't, um, yeah, put me down about doing it. But they weren't, yeah, weren't throwing the encouragement around. Um, so, so I just. I don't know. I guess I just had had it in this feeling that like I just want to go and and learn this and and do it and and um, yeah, just did sort of you know set aside what other people were saying. I just kept pretty focused on on what I had to do and and uh, worked hard. You know, worked a lot of lot of different jobs and and hours and things like that to just make sure I could keep keep it all together and and just back myself in, really. Coming up after the break, we'll take a look at how Harvey got into his first property. So I was a bit tentative, but my wife was like, no, let's just buy it. You know, let's just buy our first house. And and I'm glad she was pretty um, yeah, pushy on that because we ended up buying a place and it, and it was a duplex. We find out a little bit about his portfolio and the current number of properties he has. I still hold 32 today. Um, one of them's my own home and one of them's a lifestyle property. And then the rest are, are investments. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. He delves into his property investing journey all the way to the beginning, starting with his first property. We bought, uh, so my now wife and I back then bought our first home in 2000. Um, and we so we'd come back from our trip around the world in the late 98 and then we sort of settled back in for a year. Um, we'd say we had a little bit of money each, I think we had about 25,000 um, each you know as a deposit i was pretty nervous at that point um because i i think at that point i hadn't really worked out of my own mind that i wanted to be really involved in real estate 
Um, so I was a bit tentative, but my wife was like, no, let's just buy it. You know, let's just buy our first house. And, and I'm glad she was pretty um, yeah, pushy on that because we ended up buying a place and it, and it was a duplex. Um, and so that didn't make me feel real comfortable at the start. I'm like, I bought my first house, but I'm sharing it with someone else. You know, we're sharing the driveway and the garage and, and so on. But, you know, the, eventually I, I understood what this meant for us that we, you know, we'd bought our own home and we'd also bought an investment at the same time. Um, and I was able to to modify that property a lot to make it a little bit more separate so people, you know, we all had our own privacy. And um, <clears throat> and I, I fixed it up a lot with the skills that I'd, I'd been learning in the, in the building industry. And uh, I think, yeah, it, re- it just really motivated me going through that process of you know what's possible, um, so so we had that property. Um, we ended up having that property for uh, well, we sold because I ended up subdividing it many years down the track. We we sold the first one about ten years later, and then we sold the last, the second one probably only about four years ago. So we ended up holding a portion of that property for a long time, and and I think as I'd created you know value in that properties have built up equity and we're paying the loan down i just thought well, you know now's the time to to explore the the opportunity to to start investing on a bigger scale harvey explains why he and his wife decided to buy a duplex for a home it was a couple of things it was something in our price range in the area that we wanted to live in uh, and it was a little bit unique probably didn't appeal to everyone and yeah, again, she just said, well, look, let's just go. It's not our forever home. Let's buy it. You know, and I was like, oh, I don't want, you know, someone living right next door or sharing the garage and all those sorts of things. And I probably just was focusing at the time in the in the wrong areas because I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't even really thinking much like an investor, let alone a, a property owner, really at that time. I, you know, I almost wanted, you know, the – you know, let's get the nice house and, you know, whatever, whereas she was more, well, let's just get into the market, you know, and and look how good this, well, you know, we can rent next door out from $150 a week or whatever it was back then. Um, you know, how much is that going to help us? And I'm, you know, and and I'm just so glad that she she pushed that and and we ended up proceeding because, you know, in hindsight, it worked out to be just fantastic, really. We find out a little bit about his portfolio and the current number of properties he has. I still hold 32 today. Um, one of them's my own home and one of them's a lifestyle property. And then the rest um, are investments. So roughly how much would you say that portfolio is worth? Because it's a substantial amount of properties there. Look, it's probably not, when I tell you the figure, it might surprise you. It's not worth as much as probably what you might perceive because I bought a lot of cheap properties. Um, and I'll talk to you about, um, you know, what I did and, and why I did it. I sort of keep tabs on my figures pretty well. So, so I've, I've got it currently valued at just over seven million um, um, today. But to help understand why, I, you know, I bought a lot of my first investment outside of that duplex. I paid fifty five thousand for. So, so I bought a, I bought a lot of. Lot of cheap investments, and of actually of the ones I'm holding at the moment, uh, so outside of my own property, the most expensive 
investment property I've ever purchased was 336000 I'm assuming a majority of the properties that you purchase are positive cash flow, if that's the case. Is that correct to say? I get really good cash flow out of them and that uh, it's interesting that you brought that up because it, it actually was my focus from the start. Um, uh, for a number of reasons, I, I, I felt early on into the process that the purpose of me doing this is to generate an income later on in my life. And then that's what I actually was going to ask. Like, how, do you know roughly how much income you're generating from this portfolio? So at the moment, the income's about three hundred thirty thousand, just over three hundred thirty thousand. As Harvey has purchased over thirty properties in his life, it's inevitable to experience a lot of ups and downs. We explore what one of his worst investing moments were. I have thought about that, and I I don't know if I'd say I'd have categorized it as anything that I've done as a worst experience. I I just take everything and sort of in my stride um i've had yeah i mean i've certainly lost money on on my investments you know many hundreds of thousands of dollars for sure over the years by trying things that weren't that weren't that successful and in and again when you reflect on it probably didn't have the expertise it didn't didn't um build up my knowledge prior to going into that strategy um nothing's Nothing's been a disaster um, and I've always, and, and I guess this is a really important point, I've always made sure my portfolio could could handle basically anything that was thrown at me. So, um, and and a really good point I want to make for, for the listeners too is not only in making sure I selected a, a lot of different properties in different locations to give me some diversity, that, that to me was a bit of a risk management strategy. But I also made sure that I was continuing growing my income outside of the investments, in my case, my business, so so that when things didn't quite go to plan, I, I had resources I could always draw on. Um, and, and I always viewed viewed it as a long game. So, you know, all the little speed humps I'm going to encounter along the way are, are just that. None, none of them are going to be detrimental to to the overall outcome but we must be in a position to be able to deal with them so um so you know i'd like i did a development once and i i didn't really make any money out of that could you talk about that one that that sounds like a very very interesting story how how did you find that development and what happened i bought a a block of land out in um, country victoria in a a town um and had an old place on it i think i paid about eighty odd thousand at the time and I eventually got permits to build four units on it, uh, but that took a long period of time, and I was, I was I was pretty clunky through the process, and and yeah, ultimately didn't didn't do my due diligence enough to understand what the the true cost was going to be, what the end value was going to be, and uh, cut a cut a long story short, I was fortunate enough to sell them to the Department of Housing. The, the government was um, at the time looking for more um, uh, housing, and they, uh, I, a friend of mine actually said, "Look, he knew about this. He said, why don't you put your property for? Because he knew I was having a bit of a trouble with it. I didn't know how I was going to finance the build at the time because you worked out, you know, I mean, the, the value was going to be virtually what I was going to owe. So there was no not going to be any equity really in the in the deal." He said, well, "Why don't you sell them to the put it up to the 
Department of Housing, they might be interested in buying it, and, and, and which they did. So once I had a signed contract for four units, then it was really easy to get the finance from the bank. Um, so we ended up just just building them. But I look to be honest, I lost uh, interest in the whole project, and I didn't even keep real good track of the numbers. But I certainly didn't make any money, and I, I you know I probably would have been underwater. I don't know, fifty to hundred grand probably throughout the process. Harvey tells us what initially interested him to jump into this type of deal. I thought there was. I guess it highlights my naivety, really, and inexperience. At the time, I bought a block of land for, you know, 80-something thousand and then I thought, well, you know, I'll build four units and I'll sell them for, you know, 250, 280,000 and, you know, you know, they'd have to be profit. But, you know, I had a, I had a bit of a sloping block and, you know, it, and throughout the whole planning process, it, we worked out that, you know, all the drainage had to go the opposite way to the slope and, you know, so we had to build all these retaining walls and, you know, so costs just blew out, you know, so, so you know, a more experienced developer, you know, probably would have seen those signs um, uh, at the start. So so I think in, look, someone who knew what they're doing would have made money, but someone like me who didn't really know what they were doing uh, didn't make money. So. Um, so it was certainly a, a good lesson to learn. Um, it hasn't tarnished my view on developing. It's like anything, you just need to understand what you're getting yourself into. Um, and yeah, and I, I just didn't enjoy the process, to be honest. It just, you know, money aside, even if I, even if I told you now I'd made a hundred grand, I'd still say I didn't enjoy the process. It wasn't really my thing. I guess with that one, was that close to where you were or was it sort of a regional town kind of thing? It was a regional town, yeah. So I ended up uh, getting a builder. It was actually a builder from Melbourne uh, set himself up up there for six months while he built them. So um, so I had, they were really well built. Um, but to be honest, I was that disinterested in it. I never went – I never even saw the finished product. I just, yeah, I went up to them. I remember going to the site when – um, yeah, it was at lockup, and that was the last time I, I've, I've since driven past the site, but I, that was the last time I went to the site. So I just had no interest in it. I just wanted to get it finished as quickly as possible and, and just move on. After looking at some of his not so great moments in his property investment journey, we turn it around and take a look at his aha moments. I think the whole journey has been that. And even up until recently, um, so so I set out to you know to buy properties that I could afford with very good rental return. A for a number of reasons, like I said, one of the reasons to generate an income stream later. But it was also what I could afford at the time. You know, I'd only you know started my business, wasn't generating huge profits at the time, so I had to focus on what I was able to do, um, and I and I deliberately did that rather than you know, not uh, rather than worrying about what I couldn't do. Um, and and it was it was great to be able to buy these properties where the cash flow was very good. Um, so it enabled me, you know, the, most of them were reasonably cash flow neutral. So, you know, I could just keep keep buying. I'd try and add value to them where I could to, to fast track my equity and I'd get, um, you know, uh, family to come in and invest with me, to, you know, to... to 
um, you know, provide deposits and things so I could move quicker in the process. Um, and that, that turned out to be very good. I, um, I also did a lot of investing in the mining sector around Australia, um, probably around the 2004, I'm just having a bit of a look, 2004 through 2007. Um, and that, that worked out to be a very good. Uh, for me, and I, I still pretty much hold all of those properties today. Um, but I, I manage that risk by buying cheaper properties, um, and you know, and we, I, I got to ride that, that um, growth boom, both capital growth and and rental growth. Um, and, and look, you know, a lot of the properties have pulled back a bit now since their peak, but I was. I took all the equity out of them at the peak, so I've I've been able to, in a roundabout way, enjoy the fruits of of that growth, um, uh, rather than you know looking at it now going, okay, what's well, come off X percent off its off off its um, peak, and and not be able to you know grab that equity and go and do other things with it. So so I'm glad I I made that decision, which is great because you know. It sounds like because you bought it under market value and it's positive cash flow, it pretty much pays itself off. So, it doesn't even matter if the values haven't gone up. I mean, it'd be great if it does but in some sense, you've already tapped into equity. I've already tapped into it now. Yeah, you're right and it's something I I think about a lot because the, the value of my portfolio is not that uh, – I'm not that excited about it but what I am excited is maximizing the, the income from it. Um, and I've still got a lot of debt to pay off because I've, uh, you know, I've, I'm going to be, you know, paying off these loans still for probably another good ten to fifteen years, I would say, um, which seems like a long time because I started twenty years ago. But, but I've also enjoyed my myself along the way, and that was a very um, a specific thing that we as a family decided because it wasn't just let's do this and you know, hope we're still here in 30 years to enjoy it. Let's get a good blend of planning for tomorrow but also taking some of the rewards along the way. So that was a conscious decision and one that I'm very, very pleased that we did. So it means my debt's higher now than what it could have been but uh, yeah, it comes back to what I said earlier about just making sure you're robust and can can deal with things and you know we manage it very comfortably and uh, you know we're just we're, we're on principal and interest repayments on pretty much everything now, and you know just on that path now to you know to owning as many as practical by the time uh, you know I think it's right to to start you know using it as part of our income really. After listening to Gary Harvey share his ups and downs throughout his journey, we'll keep the conversation going where we'll talk about how to apply his strategy for property investment. An asset is something that puts money in your pocket. So if you if I'm buying something that's not doing that, then it's not fitting that particular definition of an asset. Now I think and the definition is broader than that, but but that point really resonated with me. The kind of mindset he has adopted throughout his property investment journey 
I think what's really important is just listening to to people and and then taking that information and forming your own view on what you think is going to work for you because there's no one way. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.